Now today we're going to have a bit of a different reading from the Bible. You might like to just sit back and listen to this episode from John's Gospel. From Luke's Gospel. (laughs) Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they were talking and discussing these things, Jesus came along and walked with them, but they were kept from recognising him. Jesus asked, What are you two discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, Are you just a visitor in Jerusalem and does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus replied, What things? And they said, Hold on, I'm going to check because I've had a mental blank. <laughs> <laughs> back to it, everyone, back to it. The gospel doesn't wait for anyone. Okay. About Jesus of Nazareth, they said. The chief priests and the rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death. And then they crucified him. But we thought he was going to be the one to redeem all of Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels that said Jesus was alive. So me and a couple of companions, we went to the tomb, and we saw that everything that the women had said was true. (coughs) (laughs) Um, And then Jesus said to them, this is great. They said to him, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe that everything that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were heading, Jesus continued as if he had gone on forever. they urged him strongly, Same with us, for it is me with you. And the day is almost over. So we went in and stayed with When you left the temple, Jesus just said, Hey, friends, what is it? And began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning as he talked to us along the road and opened the they got up and at once returned to Jerusalem, where they found eleven and those with them assembled, and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. So the two told of what had happened to them um, along the way and how they, reco- they recognized him when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, they were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt lies in your mind? Is it my hands and my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still 
not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in it. It's the day of the opening of an art exhibition. A famous artist, a friend of yours, and you've popped in just after lunch to see a bit of a sneak preview. As you walk towards the door, though, your hairs stand on end. You see the door open, but through the gloom, you can see that things are not as they should be. Where there were, you imagined precious artworks, her life's work, you see rubbish. Uh, Pipes hang from the ceiling, torn from their fittings. There's spray paint on the walls, uh, offensive slogans everywhere. The, The materials even of the works have been corrupted beyond recognition and through the gloom you see to your horror garbage piled up from the street. Uh, Garbage cans brought in, garbage everywhere, rubbish. There surely will be no exhibition tonight. And then your heart stops. Because you see in the back, through the gloom, a figure. The vandal is still in the room with you, holding a sledgehammer in one hand and garbage bags full of garbage in the other. And your surprise and your fear turn to just confusion when you realise that it's, it's the artist herself. We're going to return to this image, hit pause on this image and return to it later. Because I want to start with this story, thank you so much to those who've memorised it and told it to us, uh, this story of another group of people who've walked in the middle of a confusing and disturbing set of events. Cleopas and whoever was with him may have actually been his wife, Mary, who was random fact, uh, Jesus' mother's sister-in-law. It may have been Mary, we don't know, but Cleopas has come to the end of perhaps one of the most confusing and disturbing, world-shattering weekends of his life. It all happened on Friday. We know the date, probably. It's the 5th of April in the year 33, and that's that's the day on which the dream died. Uh, The guy that they thought was going to redeem Israel, the guy they thought was God's chosen saviour, Jesus, turned out not to be. And he joined a long list of failed revolutionaries. There were other people that people thought were the Messiah. Uh, There was Theodos who led 400 people thinking that he was the Messiah until he was killed. There was Judas the Galilean who led a small rebellion for a little while until... Well, he was killed as well. Later, in fact, there were other messiahs. There were people like Ben Kossabar, who for three years, everyone thought was the messiah, or at least his followers did, right up until the point uh, where he was executed by the Romans. If you're a revolutionary and you're killed by the Romans, that makes you a failed revolutionary. Uh, One uh, first century historian puts it like this. I really like this. Crucifixion, he writes, is what happens to people who think they are going to liberate Israel and find out too late that they were mistaken. 
Crucifixion is what happens to failed messiahs. And yet they were so sure. Cleopas and the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, were certain that this was the man God had chosen to liberate Israel, to bring peace and reconciliation between the racially divided lands, to restore temple worship, to fight corruption, to bring about peace and fight off the oppression of the Romans. They were certain, right up until the point where Jesus was executed. They weren't looking for a resurrection just to state the obvious. They felt not guilt that they'd betrayed Jesus, I don't think. They felt betrayed by Jesus. They felt like God had failed to show up. And yet they were so sure. And so uh, Cleopas and and maybe his wife, maybe another friend, make that seven-mile journey back to Emmaus, basically to start their lives again. Maybe you've experienced something of this feeling of utter, earth-shattering disappointment. Maybe you've been waiting for God to turn up at a point in your life, for God to do something and he hasn't, for God to be present and he has been absent. Well, Cleopas knew what that felt like. But then his weekend got weirder. It got much, much weirder. He didn't expect to bump into a guy who'd just been executed. He didn't expect to share a meal with him. He didn't expect for him to ask for some broiled fish. It's fair to say that this was a disruptive event in his weekend. This changed absolutely everything and I'd like to show you that there's three ways in which the resurrection changes the whole world. His world changed in a moment. And I think the whole world changed in that moment as well. If you're a note-taking person, I'm going to give you three points. I promise to try to keep to them. Uh, Firstly, the resurrection says that Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. Jesus is, after all, the Messiah, the Jewish word for saviour or revolutionary or person to come back and put put the world the right way up. up. Uh, The resurrection says that Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. Secondly, the resurrection says that he can raise you too. The resurrection says that he can raise you too. And thirdly, the resurrection says that there is hope for this world. We'll begin at the first point. The resurrection says that Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. I said before, these people were not expecting a resurrection. You know, it's people who have believed in something and then been disappointed who make the most hardened sceptics and cynics, don't you think? The people who've believed in a guy, believed in Jesus and then seen all their hopes disappointed, who probably were the most cynical. I don't know why they couldn't recognise Jesus, whether it was some kind of miracle or simply because they were so cynical by this point. They didn't want to believe. They were certainly not expecting to run into Jesus. But what if, what if Jesus' horrible crucifixion on the cross was not the point of his failure, but was actually the point, the climax in a different story. What if it was the climax not just in Jesus' story as the saviour, the revolutionary, the bringer of peace to Israel, what if it was actually the climax in an even bigger story? And that's exactly what this stranger on the road tries to show them. 
This stranger Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus yet, turns up and retells the story, not just of the last few days, but in fact of the whole world. That it was in fact God's plan that the Messiah should suffer for the sins of the whole world. That it was God's plan that through the disgrace of the cross, God would save his people. There are all sorts of movements around in their day and age. There are lots of movements, lots of messiahs, lots of different people claiming to know the way the world works. Uh, There were different opinions about how to read the Old Testament, for instance. And it's really the same today. There are different movements around today. Uh, They have serious-sounding names like Hegel and Marx and Nietzsche or Tony Abbott or... (laughs) There's, There's all sorts of thinkers, all sorts of stories told about this world. Different ways of putting together their history, the past, and and a different story about the future. And some of them have great hope. Uh, Some of them have great hopelessness. The great atheists, I mean the great atheists. And if you are going to read atheist literature, read the great ones. Sartre and Camus and all all the, the really big thinkers, not the people who write books now. The Nietzsche's of the world told a story without hope. A story in which hope was, in fact, a laugh. The idea that there's anything beyond this pitiful, meaningless life or that we should look for anything, any meaning, is laughable. How do you know whose story is right? It was the same problem then. They had particularly first-century Palestinian kind of stories about the world. But they also had different stories, They thought Jesus was right. How do you tell? How do you make the choice between all the different stories about the world, all the different stories of hope or hopelessness? Well, for me, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of people who've been able to organise their own death. There's only one person, as far as I can tell, who's been able to organise his own resurrection. And from that point onward, I think Jesus had their attention again when they realised that this crucified dead Messiah was standing in front of them and asking for something to eat. Man, haven't eaten in days. When they realised that he was really alive again, well, suddenly the story that he was telling took on credibility. Now, I don't expect everybody here believes that Jesus is the trustworthy guide to how the world works, the true story of the universe I don't think everyone here, I don't expect everyone here believes that that is true at this point, but can I say, if Jesus really did do this, he deserves your attention. There are not a sea of untestable, unverifiable stories that we need to kind of fish in. There is one that stands out, I think, if this happened. Uh, It's really interesting, I was just reading through on the grass, I got bitten by these crazy Eastern Avenue bugs, by the way. So if I start squirming, it's because they look like ants, but they're much nastier. So I think that's some still in my shirt. As I was sitting out there, that's totally irrelevant. As I was sitting out there, I was reading through uh, Luke, because someone had pointed out to me that uh, this is the eighth time someone eats anything in the Gospel of Luke. You notice that? I hadn't, so I had to look. The eighth time... The eighth meal. Uh, Luke is a man of few words. He expects his audience to do work. I think he's pointing out that this is the start of a new week and not just because it's Sunday. The start of a new age. 
everything changes from this point because the resurrection says that Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. He is, after all, the Messiah. And what that means is that, well, the resurrection says that he can raise you too. The resurrection says that he can raise you as well. Uh, at this university, well, so in 1928, there was an invention of this very university. Proud bit of history moment for you. Um, some medical researchers came up with a way of inserting a charge into the heart of a stillborn baby. And for about 10 to 15 minutes, they were able to get the heart started again using a varied kind of frequencies and, and voltages and, and bring the baby back to life. This invention in 1926, I think, was first used on a child in 1928, was a huge deal. This is the technology which 30 years later would go into the first implantable pacemaker device. And so in that room, as those researchers, for the first time, were able to restart a little stillborn baby's heart, the lives of millions of people were entirely unaffected. Well, think about it. That night, millions of people with dodgy hearts still died. Millions of people with great hearts kept on going. Nothing changed. At that point, in 1926 to 1928, this invention achieved nothing. Well, one, one stillborn baby was brought back to life, and that's a good thing. But the world didn't change, sort of. But sort of it did as well. Can you see that? Can you see that in this invention there is hope? My father-in-law, even though he wasn't even born then, is probably walking around a golf course right now, powered by one of these guys, right? <laughs> it's incredible. He can go in and get a tune-up. and kind of, He needs to have a little bit more energy for his golf game and the, the guy can Wi-Fi into his heart and give him a whole new kind of lease of life, literally. This prototype changed the world, I think, in a kind of nebulous, in a non-specific kind of way we call hope. Hope can change the world. And I want to suggest to you that if Jesus rose from the dead, then though many people continue to die and have died ever since, this prototype has changed the world. Because if Jesus can do it himself, well, he can do it for you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not going to read it now, but it's a beautiful piece of literature. Uh, if you have a chance, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, I'll give you mine. Take this, t go read 1 Corinthians 15. Read about this prototype Jesus because he was raised, you will be too. Do you get the impact of that? Sins forgiven, life eternal, this prototype, this resurrection means hope. So we had the resurrection firstly says that Jesus is after all the Messiah. Secondly, the resurrection says he can raise you as well. But thirdly, I want to go a little bit more global and say the resurrection says that there is hope for this world as well. There is hope for this world. Do you notice in Jesus' body there is both continuity and discontinuity? There's same but there's also different. I want to just kind of explore this for a second. I mean, the, the dissimilarity, the discontinuity is quite obvious, right? He was dead, now he's not, right? There's a discontinuity between his rotting, dead, pathetic, bloody body 
and the one that turns up asking for something to eat. There is discontinuity, but there's also continuity. You see that when he actually appears to them later in the story and he invites them to check out the holes in his hands. Have you ever wondered this? Why are there still holes in his hands? It's because it's resurrection, not reincarnation, for instance. It's not a new body. It is new, but it's not new. There is continuity with his old body. Uh, He looks like Jesus, mostly. He walks around eating. We're familiar with the idea of ghosts. They were then as well. We're familiar with the idea of reincarnated Dalai Lamas and all sorts of other ways in which people can somehow beat death. But this is kind of new. And it was new for them as well, let me point out. There was no expectation that the resurrection promised at the end of the world when God would raise the righteous would happen in one person now. And yet that is what happened. There is continuity and discontinuity. I think that is an incredibly precious and beautiful thing to hold on to. Let me explain why. As you drive over Anzac Bridge, or walk over Anzac Bridge, I don't have a car anymore, so I often cycle over Anzac Bridge. You can see on your left this really dodgy-looking boat. It's kind of red and rusting. And I had someone over dinner who actually told me what it was for the first time because he'd worked on it for about a week a few years ago. Um, It's actually a steamship made in the 1920s in Scotland which had been well and truly put out of service. And you'll see why if you look at it. It's got holes in it. The thing's rusting badly. And yet this boat has been taken, it was given I think in the 70s or 80s to this heritage boat refurbishment uh, charity. And they they took ages and ages and ages to raise the money until 2002 they finally got the cash together and the volunteers together to refurbish this boat. And it's incredible. You can actually stand under the stern. I've seen photos of this and and look up. On one side you can see the work they've completed. And the other side you can see the work they definitely have not completed. Now I'm no boatologist, right? I, I, I don't know anything about boats, but I can tell the difference, right? Because on one side, you've got all this steel, which is kind of decaying away. You've got these massive runs of rust coming down. There's hole, like there's holes. There's like rivets missing in this thing. It's not going to float. <laughs> I can tell you that. But on the other side, almost there's a, a, a kind of perfect line straight down the middle. On the other side, they've replaced all the faulty pieces of steel, they put in entirely new rivets. They've spent years, 12 years so far, putting in new rivets, new bolts, lovingly re-kind of painting it to make it able to float one day. And it's amazing, as you can see, it's the same boat. Right? The, the, reno- the restored side, the resurrected side, if I can use that word, of a boat, is new but not new because it's a different boat. Now, I'm, I'm, again, no boatologist. I would imagine that rebuilding an entirely new boat from scratch would be a whole, hot le- a whole lot less effort. Do you agree? I, mean, I don't know. Anyone here build boats? They seem to be able to kind of spew those things out using modern technology really quickly. This has taken 12 years and they've only done half of it. Why bother? And it's because, I think, there is something valuable in that boat. There is love. There is passion. There is a desire to see that boat not replaced, but restored to its former glory as a border protection boat or whatever it was bought for. 
I don't think they're going to use it for that. I think they're just going to keep it in a museum. I want to suggest, though, that if that's the fate of our world, right, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul seems to make that link. If God has decided not to select all and delete, right? you've done this on essay, you've done this on essays, I'm sure you have. You get to the point where it's so structurally unsound, your essay, right? You just, it's going to take you more time to restructure that baby than just to start again, right? You've, you've, you are there, you've done that. So you select all and you delete. But God didn't do that. Can you see what this means about our world, about our bodies, about our universe, about us? God has not chosen to select all and delete because in Jesus we see what his plan is for the whole world, for the future. Continuity as well as discontinuity in some important ways. That is our hope and the resurrection says that our God can bring beauty out of chaos. He can bring life out of death. The resurrection says there is a hope for this world, that there is beauty possible, even though when we look around, it doesn't look like that. I want to return to for a moment to wrap up our art gallery situation. Remember you walked in, and incomprehensibly, the artist herself is in the middle of a scene of utter destruction. What's she doing? You've walked in midway through a story. And the thing is about life, the thing is about history, the thing is about God. It's not a single scene. It's not an Instagram moment. It's a story. And so you need to know what happened this morning when the artist herself, long before you arrived after lunch, turned up. Uh, she saw the forced lock and the splintered wood around the doorframe and she knew that something bad had happened. This was her life's work, her masterwork, and she was prepared as she pushed open the door to see some of her most precious work stolen. She wasn't prepared to see what she found. Someone had broken in and destroyed it. And not just destroyed it, taken all the beauty in there and so horribly disfigured it beyond recognition that there was no hope even of fixing the works. Rubbish everywhere, offensive spray-painted slogans on the walls. It was a mess. And at that moment she thought, for a horrible moment, there is going to be no art gallery exhibition opening tonight. Any normal sane person at that point would just call it quits. All right? Just start again, cancel the exhibition, go back, and do another project. I don't know if you know many artists, they're not saying normal people. <laughs> At that point, her investment in that art exhibition is so great that she cannot walk away. So she makes a decision, a decision which explains what you saw later in the day, a decision to commit to that artwork, to commit to that project, to take, if it's even possible, the rubbish that someone else has introduced into her creation and to use it as found objects within a new creation, to try to sculpt it, to try to recreate something different, something with continuity but also discontinuity with her vision before. And whereas her previous work demonstrated her creative genius, this work, if it is pulled off, will demonstrate not just her creative genius but her love. It takes genius to create something beautiful from scratch. It takes an absolute commitment of love 
to resurrect something. And that is what we are confronted with in the story of God and his creation, the story of a beautiful creation corrupted horribly, but a God who will not let go. The question for you as you watch the artist now that you've worked out what's going on is can she do it? Is it within her power to create something beautiful out of the chaos? And I want to suggest to you that that is similar to the situation we find ourselves now in this point of the story, watching God in the world because the world is not ready. The world is not beautiful. The world is not resurrected. And yet we have seen his masterstroke, haven't we? We've seen that he can bring resurrection out of Good Friday. That Sunday comes, that he is able to do that. And that's why I think the resurrection changes the world completely. You may have many questions about that. You may be in a different place. You may not believe this happened. But I hope at least you can see that if it didn't happen, then it would have been beautiful if it had. Because the resurrection changes the world. Uh, So the first question is, you talked a fair bit, uh, you used an illustration, uh, it says, the question says, Jesus is the prototype. So I think it's referring to the illustration that you used um, and the way that the prototype came but it didn't immediately mean changes in everyone but there was hope for the future. Hmm. The question seems to be asking what, well, it literally does ask, what does Jesus' resurrection mean for us now? Sure. Um, it means, firstly, that he was right, and that means a lot of things. Uh, it means that his way of reading the Old Testament, for instance, is right. There's lots of other ways that you can put the Old Testament together. You can put um, God's promises together. But if Jesus was raised, then that vindicates his understanding of who he was. Um, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, well, you can do it backwards because in 1 Corinthians 15 he talks about the things that are not true if Jesus is not raised. So, if Jesus is not raised, then you are still in your sins. That applies now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. We have to take his word for it right up until the point where he's raised. So, we know that he is true. He's right. Um, It means also the gift of the Holy Spirit So after the resurrection comes the gift of the Spirit. So there's all these benefits, so don't get me wrong, there's huge benefits to Jesus being raised. Uh, But we have to be careful not to, uh, put it this way, a form of Christianity which promises glory now, which promises a resurrected life now, is missing, I think, what the New Testament talks about um, this life being, which is one of non-resurrection. We don't experience pain-free existence, we don't experience immortality. We don't experience freedom from persecution. We don't experience riches and wealth. But we will. And that's the promise of the kingdom. Can I ask a follow-up question to that, which is, what does it mean for you personally that you have the Holy Spirit in your life now? So the Holy Spirit is described as a down payment. If I was to borrow a million dollars from you, you'd be very wise to take a deposit, quite a substantial one. My credit rating is pretty bad. I have no assets, not much income. If I was going to borrow a million dollars, you'd rightly expect some kind of down payment. And the Holy Spirit is exactly that. I mean, the Holy Spirit is a person, but the Holy Spirit is described as a down payment on those future promises. You experience him now. You have the benefit of him now. 
and that is what helps us to hold on. It's interesting, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, what is, it, what is his application of the fact that resurrection is coming? Stand firm. Don't be disheartened. Keep going. Knowing that your labour, what he says, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I think that's what the Holy Spirit, what the hope of the resurrection guarantees us now. Great, thank you. So I've got a few more questions. Keep them coming through. Uh, The question says, how can we be sure that Jesus was raised? Excellent question. Um, I deliberately haven't dealt with this because I thought maybe you wanted a short talk today, but that's okay, I can keep on going. (laughs) Um, And because there's a course, obviously, that I really recommend. Um, When an event happens which changes the world, it leaves a changed world. So I've been saying the resurrection changes the world. You should be able to find evidence of that changed world. Now, you find evidence. Events in history leave evidence. They don't leave proof. Now, this is a really important misunderstanding. I had uh, witnessed a very, very fruitless argument between someone who obviously knew nothing about history and a historian the other day, talking about whether he could prove any events from the past. Of course not, because events don't leave proof. They leave evidence and all evidence needs to be weighed and considered. So the resurrection of Jesus left documents that need to be weighed and considered. It left archaeological things which corroborate details in those documents because people were inspired by the resurrection to write about the account and at various points those accounts mention details of geography and archaeology. It doesn't leave proof. It leaves evidence. It leaves witnesses who need to be evaluated. And the only way you evaluate a witness is by their character. And most importantly, it leaves a world which has changed. It's really interesting. Between Good Friday and Easter Monday in the year 33 AD, something weird happened, right? Even if you're on the far sceptical end of first century Palestinian history, you have to admit that something weird happened then. A whole bunch of Jews, orthodox, good, well-behaved Jewish boys and girls, suddenly went from believing in a nationalistic messianic cause to a completely unprecedented, weird belief that somehow a crucified Messiah was the reigning king. Right? Can you see the contradiction in that? Something happened overnight, well actually over two nights, that changed that. Something took a bunch of people who didn't actually believe in him anymore to make them willing to die for what they'd seen. Something took, and this is the bit that got me, enemies of that cause started dying for what they said they'd seen. And at that point, between Easter Friday and Easter Monday, there is something that's about the size and shape of a resurrection that kind of looks and smells and tastes like a resurrection, which leaves the same effects as a resurrection, and you have to decide whether you live in the type of universe where God is likely to do something like that. So please, do the course, weigh the evidence. Hmm. And if that's something you're still questioning and you'll be hanging around for a little bit after public meeting and happy to talk more about this or some of the other questions... I've got a few more. We're not going to get to every single one. Uh, But the next question is, why can't God just wipe us clean and make the world perfect? Now, this is an interesting question because the text, uh, it leaves the T off the perfect. It's perfect. I think that's a deliberate emphasis uh, that it's, you know, (laughs) it's not perfect just yet. Why can't can't God wipe us clean and make the world perfect? Yeah, genius. Um, (laughs) 
I take this question as asking why this elaborate Good Friday resurrection thing, why not, as in Islam, God just forgives if he wants to? So I'm, that's, is that fair reading the question, do you think? Um, I was I when the person... leading at the next one. <laughs> <laughs> you were not paying attention. Um, I take the question asking why this death resurrection business? Um, I think there's a couple of answers to this, but uh, the logic of God's provision of forgiveness is that, and we looked at this last week, if, if you were here, we spoke a, a lot about this, is that forgiveness is costly. To just forgive is not to understand what forgiveness is. I was speaking to a philosopher uh, last week um, who described forgiveness as one of the most difficult concepts in ethics. Think about it. In what other circumstances is it right for the guilty party to be unpunished and the innocent to continue to suffer, to bear the full weight of the other person's transgression? It's a very problematic concept. And yet the heart of the Christian message is that God has indeed suffered and the guilty have gone free. Now, I think there's a degree of metaphor in the way that we interpret what's going on here. The Bible has several metaphors it uses to to describe what happens. Some of them are like redemption, so the the paying of a price to get a slave out of slavery, the um, the idea of a law court, letting someone be announced, being proclaimed as as, uh, guiltless, the idea um, of a a swap, switcheroo, right? All of them have at this core, the core of their their metaphor, the idea that God suffers while we go free. Mm. And I think that's what we see visibly demonstrated. Now, could God have done it another way? Questions about whether God could have done things, contingent questions about God, tend to get you around in circles. He has done it. So over to you. That would be my response. 